Hello, I'm Amber Athey, The Spectator's Washington editor, and I'm here to encourage you to subscribe to The Spectator's American edition. If you visit spectator.us forward slash subscribe, you can get our print and digital edition for just $7.99 a month. This means you get unlimited access to our amazing website and we'll send you a beautiful 80-page monthly magazine. You'll also have access to our mobile app. Subscribe now at spectator.us forward slash subscribe. You won't regret it. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and now the Joe Biden presidency. We will be looking at how a 78-year-old president will change America and we'll be asking if normalcy, which is what he promised to bring, has returned to American politics. The answer, of course, is no. I'm joined today by George Packer, who is the very distinguished American writer of non-fiction and fiction and a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's the author of quite a few critically acclaimed books, including The Unwinding and The Assassin's Gate. And his new book is more of a political pamphlet, and it's called Last Best Hope, an essay on the revival of America. Now, George, before we get started, I want to ask you a little bit about July the 4th, because today is July the 5th. And I think this sort of connects to what you're talking about in the book. But I wanted to just ask you if the way that Americans celebrate July the 4th has changed in recent years, in recent decades, and whether that speaks to what you're trying to say about America in this essay. It's a good question. And the answer is yes, it has changed. When I was a kid, I grew up on a college campus, which was almost by definition a politically liberal place. But on July 4th, all the kids in my neighborhood would gather together and decorate our bikes with red, white, and blue crepe paper and parade up and down the street and then set off fireworks and sparklers. And it was just a kind of secular ritual that was normal every year. And today, I don't know if kids in my old neighborhood would be doing that because even red, white, and blue has gotten to be a sensitive, controversial thing for a lot of Americans. The very display of an American flag has come to mean for some people that I'm pro-Trump, that I'm Republican and pro-Trump. And I think Trump supporters have have really done a good job of seizing the flag and, and taking it away from others. And others may have let them take it away by being embarrassed by it. So... If I drive past a house showing an American flag, I'm going to assume that they're Trump people. I don't like assuming that. I want the flag to be everyone's flag. But because I know our society, I think the chances are pretty good that that's what it means. And so the flag itself has become divisive. One side has taken the flag and turned it into a Blue Lives Matter uh, banner. So it's very much a political thing. It doesn't look like any American flag to me. It's black and blue. It looks sort of sinister. And the other side has taken the same flag and turned it into a rainbow flag. That is a gay pride LGBTQ flag. And so the flag itself has been claimed on both sides as a political symbol of a particular outlook and tribe even, rather than something that represents national identity. 
So July 4th and, and the flag have become just something else to throw onto the, the bonfire of the culture war, as it were. I mean, I celebrate July 4th with a barbecue every year and with even some red, white, white and blue and some sparklers. I'm not going to let other people tell me I can't do that. <laughs> but July 4th is a tricky day to make a political statement or to make any statement, because I think for half the country, if you are if you're pointing to July 4th as something higher, something in a civic, secular way, almost sacred, the founding of the country, the ideas of the founding of the country, you might run into some headwinds from people who think that you're actually giving support to a political side that you may not support. So the, the, the anniversary of the day has become sensitive in a way that I really dislike because I love July 4th and I love the Declaration of Independence and I want them to be the possession and the pride of all Americans regardless, but it's just not possible today. Well, let's get on to the, to the book, which is called Last Best Hope, which is, of course, a reference to Lincoln's famous phrase about America being the last best hope of Earth. But as you say in, at the beginning of your book, you're not really talking about America being the last best hope of Earth or humanity. You're talking about America being the last best hope of America. Yeah, when, when Lincoln said that, he actually wrote it to Congress in 1862 in the middle of the Civil War in his message to Congress that asked for the authority to emancipate the slaves. Last best hope of Earth meant that it's, it's American exceptionalism in, in five words. It means America is not just one country among many. It stands for something unique. It is in some ways apart from the rest of the world. But because it's apart, it holds a torch that others around the world can look to for inspiration and even for immigration. And that's kind of what it meant maybe for the 140 years after Lincoln wrote it. It cannot mean that today. It's a preposterous claim, given really what 20 years of shocks and divisions and decline have done to this country, really since, let's say, September 11th, 2001, which the 20th anniversary of is just coming up. We cannot claim that any longer. Anyone who does would almost be laughed at. Last year, Freddie, there was a humanitarian aid being sent to this country from... Taiwan and Russia and the United Nations. We were a beggar nation for a while in the worst weeks of the pandemic. We needed help. We were looked on with kind of pity almost by, I remember there was an article in an Irish paper, I think the Irish Times, saying America is to be pitied now. We were so divided, the pandemic had so ripped us into pieces with Trump's help, and our response to it was so pathetic. And tragically so. I mean, we were leading the world in, in deaths and infections, and we still do. We were a basket case. And in the prologue, I wrote that, you know, we used to think we could save countries that had disintegrating political institutions, uh, the country divided into warring factions, no common reality, no common values. That was the kind of place like Bosnia that we would go into and, and rewrite their and write a constitution for them. 
We now are beginning to fit that description. I don't want to exaggerate. We're not Bosnia, but we're beginning to fit that description. We could easily go further down that road. No one is going to come and save us. No other country has that ambition or desire. We have to save ourselves. We are our last best hope. So it's it's a modest, lower expectation spin on Lincoln's famous phrase, and it really is more like an, a, a call of, of urgency. Let's talk briefly about the pandemic, because it seems to be the way you describe the pandemic. It's, it's a sort of shock to the American system that has, I mean, America's been very well aware of the various chronic ills within it. But the, the sort of pandemic in the way that accelerated lots of things made America more quickly and more urgently aware of the ills that it was facing. And so I wonder whether in a, in a roundabout way, of course, one doesn't want to be as crass as to say it, but that there might be a a good side to the pandemic, which is that it has sort of woken America up to the crisis it's facing. I hope so. I think that's possible. Last year in March, I thought that if anything could begin to overcome divisions, it was the pandemic because it, by definition, is going to threaten all of us. It it shows a common humanity. But that was naive because within weeks, we were at each other's throats over masking and lockdowns and police brutality and all the rest of it. So the year showed not that we are have a common humanity, which we can rally around, but that we are deeply, deeply set against one another. And the pandemic kind of like a malevolent force just found every fault line and invaded it and opened it up wider. One fault line that really was striking was between what we came to call essential and non-essential workers, not categories we had before. Essential workers were basically the working class, the people who had to go to work in order for the rest of us to go on living, whether it's uh, in meatpacking plants or in warehouses or in supermarkets. And they were the ones who were most exposed and who were the least paid. And the other half of us were sitting at home in front of laptops, and it felt very like a civilian-military divide in wartime, with the civilians sort of shamefaced but also relieved not to have to go to the front. That was a big split, and for me, it, it should have been a glaring sign of how unequal, how unfair our economy is and what pressures it puts on people who don't have a college education, basically, which is the big dividing line. And there, as you know, there were many other fault lines, but that for me was the one that I hope remains with us the most as we go forward, that we remember exactly who makes our food, who delivers our goods, and remember that we desperately depend on them and can't, can't do without them. And that's a theme I, I think I'm right in saying you've, you've focused on a bit in your, in your earlier writings. In The Unwinding, for instance, there was a lot about sort of the emerging class divisions in America. But it's it's fair to say, I think, that you're not a declinist as such. You think there is decline going on, but you're not a defeatist, perhaps, about America. And I wonder whether you think that, um, because America has always been sort of conscious of this idea that it's on the verge of going to the dogs, which is quite a sort of conservative insight, quite a British conservative insight anyway. I wonder whether you think America is always sustained by its sense of drama, its sense that we are always on the last best hope. We're always, it's always the last chance. Yes, I'm well aware that the title of my book could have been the title of a book written in 1861 or in 1933 
or in 1965 and will again be a readily used book title in 2050 and 2090 because we are, yeah, we're a drama queen of a country. The last best title. Yeah, we're constantly going, last best title, exactly. The permanent title. We have a sense that we could die, which is a sense that I don't think many countries have. Countries decline, countries go through long periods of stagnation, of corruption, of foreign invasion and occupation, cultural decay. But our idea, which goes back to July 4th, 1776, is the essential thread that connects the past and the future and the entire country to itself, this incredibly sprawling raucous, diverse country. What unites us is what Whitman called the fervid and tremendous idea. That's the thing that can keep us from falling apart. But if an idea is what holds you together, you are a vulnerable country because ideas can wither or can die or can be thrown away or be replaced by something else. And so in those periods of near death, the Civil War, the Great Depression, the 60s, and perhaps now, we sense that it's possible we could lose the, the, the experiment in self-government that we think is all that really makes us a nation. And if that happens, we become lots and lots of pieces. We're always ready to become lots and lots of pieces. Um, I have an image in the book of, I quote Orwell from, World War II in the Lion and the Unicorn saying England is a family with the wrong members in control. And I wonder, would that be a label for us? No, we're not a family. That's not an image that comes to mind. And I have my images. We're like people who are f at a fair, who are all doing different things together in the same place, but who don't really know each other. And that's, it's the fair that makes us you know, one country, not blood ties and soil. And that makes us vulnerable to this constant sense that we're about to go down the tubes. And as I think you say, when American politicians have tried to describe America as a family, they've been quickly torn apart. That happened to Mario Cuomo in 1984. It's not well known, but he gave a speech at the Democratic Convention with this elaborate analogy to a, a big, almost you could picture a big Italian family and it was moving, but that year the Democrats got destroyed in the election, and I don't think anyone really bought it. <laughs> well, one thing you say is that inequality is, is the great stress, or as you put it, inequality has undermined the common faith that America needs to create a successful multi-everything democracy. And you have this very interesting chapter, which is sort of the heart of the essay, where you talk about four narratives or perhaps myths that are a response to or, or an attempt to explain what's caused this inequality. And that's free America, smart America, real America, and just America. Could you perhaps take us through those four and describe yeah. them for us? You're right, absolutely right, to point to inequality as, I think, the undermining foundation or the lack of foundation that has split us into these four narratives since maybe the 70s. I think the 70s was the period when things started to, to move in these directions. So free America was the first big one and it was the most powerful. It came out of the 70s. It came out of the economic 
failures and political failures of that dismal decade. And it emerged in the sunny rhetoric of Ronald Reagan. I mean, Britain had its own version, of course, uh, coming out of similar doldrums in the form of Margaret Thatcher. Reagan connected free enterprise, libertarian philosophy, a modern view of small government, low taxes, deregulation with the founding principles of freedom and of, of individual effort. So he made it sound as if an investment banker on Wall Street was living the promise of the founders of the republic. And for a while, I think it was a very influential and successful narrative. But it, it ended up creating such extremes of wealth and of corporate concentration, of monopoly, and, and left so many parts of the country behind and eventually just hollowed out. You drive everywhere in America outside the coasts and the big cities and you run into poverty and into dilapidated main streets and abandoned factories everywhere. It was not a narrative that worked for most people, but it re remained the orthodoxy of the Republican Party and of the conservative movement for a long time. We'll get to what happened to that. But the second narrative, which follows chronologically as well, smart America, that is Bill Clinton's America, which is all, everything is pinned on education. And if you get the right degree and have the right credentials and enter the right profession, your life will be a great success. The country and the world are yours. The whole world is yours. It's, it's a narrative of globalization. You're in the winners of the new e information economy. And so everything depends on that college degree and even more which college degree, which piece of paper you have. It also relies on a kind of attractive American and British, because the word comes from Michael Young, British sociologist, idea, which is meritocracy, the idea that you society should be based on the best and on the most talented, on, on the most intelligent. And your intelligence and talent should be able to take you as far as possible. Meritocracy also proved to be a broken promise because really it's, it's become a form of aristocracy, to be honest. It's, people are born into it. People's families ensure that they will stay in it. It's interesting that you use the word smart because, as I'm sure you know, in Britain the word smart means posh or upper class. Whereas in America, it means intelligent. And, and perhaps in America, it's, it's coming to mean the same thing as it does in Britain and, and vice versa. I hadn't thought of that, but that's a, that's a really good point. It does mean it has a class value to it. It has a, a sense of what kind of food you eat, movies you and TV you watch, what you wear, even what your body looks like. Smart America is not full of obese people. They wouldn't really survive in smart America. So... Meritocracy becomes aristocracy. Children are born into it. Their parents make immense efforts to keep them in it with test prep tutors and coaching on writing their college application essay, which is this huge ritual that families go through and everything depends on what's in the envelope that comes from the colleges. So in a way, it, like free America, it really has created more inequality rather than solving the original problem. 
Real America is a response, a kind of rebellion against both of those. And it's a phrase that Sarah Palin used in 2008, referring to basically parts of the country that are rural or small town and are white and are Christian, where, as she put it, hardworking patriotic Americans, like July 4th is their day, grow our food and fight our wars. So it's, it's the backbone of the country. But it too has this exclusive and, and competitive quality, which leaves out actively immigrants, elites, city people, people on the coast, the not real Americans. Just by definition, it's a divisive category because some Americans are not real. It's Trump's narrative. It's a very, it's, it's stokes a lot of the nativism that we have in our politics today, the xenophobia. And it became the base of the Republican Party's narrative. Even if the orthodoxy of free America remained the kind of the mantra of the elites, at the base, economic freedom is not the motive. It's not what drives it. It's a sense of this is our country and they're trying to take it away from us. And freedom is more in the spirit of don't tread on me. It's, it's a kind of resentment of people encroaching on your property and your life, not an optimistic world full of possibilities. And finally, Just America is the most recent. It's a, also a rebellion against, I think, mostly smart America. It's the children of the meritocrats living, growing up within the anxieties of a meritocracy and coming to believe that it's a hollow ideal, that it, the image of America as a place of, you know, where immigrants and talented people can rise and opportunity is limitless as long as you work hard, that promise seems false to a lot of younger people, millennials and younger, and their narrative is that America is a caste society of oppressor and oppressed groups since time immemorial, always have been and may always be. And July 4th is a lie because on that day, slave owners signed the Declaration of Independence. So it is a, like real America, a dark and skeptical view of the traditional American promise of, of opportunity. And it has seized a lot of young people especially in the professional world. It's, it's a professional class narrative and, and kind of created a, a, a kind of fracture between them and their parents or their bosses or their colleagues. And I think a lot of the energy now, and some of it is based on a kind of moral coercion, is with the young people who are coming into the cultural institutions and really remaking them after the narrative of, just America. So those are the four. Well, I, I wonder, I mean, I think you, you expressed the hope that equal America can, can revive America if you focus on this de Tocqueville idea of equality of conditions rather than whether everything is fair or not. I, I don't want to push you towards despair, but I wonder whether when you look at real America versus just America, say, these, these two worlds that have been created very much in opposition to each other. Yes, how can we? How can America revive the idea of equality of, of conditions when you have two such warring tribes? You're right to point to them as sort of where the most intense conflict is today. 
it, all four of these narratives come from one single society. So they, they have common roots. And that means they affect each other all the time. They're constantly in interaction and change each other and even begin to resemble each other. And so real and just have a kind of extremism and a resentment and a caricature of the other and a self-caricature that I, I find keeps driving them further into their corners. Yeah, my, my hope is that what I call equal America is the one thing that is capable of, it won't end these fractures, but it might begin to mend them because it's the fundamental desire it's not just an ideal in the Declaration, all men are created equal. It's a passion, as Tocqueville called it, which he found to be the most striking and distinctive thing about Americans, the desire to be on the same level with everyone else, to be able to talk to everyone as an equal, to be able to enter any world as an equal, no matter who you are and where you come from, to have the same status and opportunities. When he says equality of conditions, it's kind of a strange phrase for us we think it means equal outcomes. It does not. It means e equal social conditions. We're all the same socially, but obviously outcomes have a lot to do with whether you feel you have social equality, because if you're in a stratified economy, you're gonna to begin to feel like a second-class citizen. So you're right that real and just America are in a state of war, for example, over the meaning of July 4th and over the meaning of American history that has a way of just endlessly repeating the same cliches on both sides and endlessly rehearsing the same arguments and clarifying nothing and leading nowhere. But that's the nature of our culture war. My bet and my hope is that policies that can begin to reverse the inequality that we've had growing for 40 or 50 years will make that poison a little less toxic. It'll still be in our system, but it just won't have that capacity to drive us into a frenzy of hatred and of fear that this other group is going to destroy us. And that depends partly on government and government showing it can improve the conditions of people's lives. And so partly I think that the key to equal America is government policy that brings up essentially the working people of America, the, the bottom 60%, let's say, of all races, and makes them feel as if they are being brought up regardless of their identity. But the more we press on that wound of identity, the more people howl in pain. So I don't know if we can get there. I, I do feel Joe Biden, in his somewhat clumsy way, has found that as the, the vision of his administration and, and is trying. Well, I was, going to, I was going to ask you about Joe Biden, but just one thought occurs to me. We talked about just America and real America being opposed to each other. But it just occurs to me that one way in which they might come together is in taking on the legacy that free America and smart America have given them because it's smart America that creates the sort of class universe that they both resent and it's free America that's perhaps created the America in which conditions are so unequal. So is there an opportunity, sort of a war against the past that might bring America together? In a way it's, um, yeah, a war against the boomers. 
I got an e- I got an email the other day from a complete stranger, a young guy who works at a big tech company who basically didn't read the whole book, but read an excerpt in the Atlantic and said, it just sounds like the same boomer BS. So I was being put into my generation. I'm at the very tail end of the baby boom, but I'm guilty. I am a boomer. And in a sense, yes, I've, I've run into some types who, who, I can't always tell whether they're on the left or the right, but I do know that they're young and they're angry and their anger is gonna send them in one of those two directions. And they may have more in common with each other than, than they do with my generation, which, has, which kind of grew up with a rather sanguine view. I mean, obviously the 60s were tremendously violent and tumultuous and the 70s were depressing, but we basically assumed that America was gonna to continue to raise its people up, that people would do better and better, that each generation would would do a little better than the last. And that is obviously no longer true. So yeah, let them them declare war on us. That brings us on to Biden in a way, because I mean, he's seen as a sort of silent generation person, almost sort of pre-boomer. Yeah. And he doesn't inspire the kind of hatred that that the boomers do among the younger generation. You said you think he's been reasonably successful at delivering or attempting to deliver some kind of unity. Is he living up to your expectation? Were your expectations high for him going in? Obviously, you think the country's in a better place than it was under Trump, under Biden. But I just would like your assessment of how successful yeah. you think Biden's been. I mean, he's a big surprise to me. Last year, I watched a lot of the Democratic Party debates in the, for the nomination, and he seemed so lost and so easily rattled and knocked around by Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. And it just seemed as if he's, his day had long since passed. Everyone thought that. And then something happened in the South Carolina primary. Working class, largely working class black voters lifted him up. And what did that mean? To me, it means that there is another narrative that those four don't acknowledge that is submerged. It's not dominant the way they are. And it's almost pre-Four Americas. It's like Biden goes back to, yeah, to FDR and Truman and to a much simpler view of the Democratic Party. We're on the side of the average person. We're giving you a fair shake. Those were the kind of homespun phrases that Democrats used to have before it became the party of the educated elite together with most non-white Americans and in a kind of uneasy coalition. So Biden knows who got him there and knows that he has to try to bring in white working class voters into that coalition because they are a huge percentage of the country They are largely Trump people, but some of them are capable, I think, of being brought back to the Democratic Party. And so his policies seemed aimed squarely at a transracial working class. The infrastructure bill, his speeches about it, are all about blue collar jobs. You don't need a college degree to fix water pipelines and bring broadband to rural areas. So I think as long as he's on that message, he's not going to win over a lot of Trump voters, but they don't hate him. You're right. He's not 
in the fight. He, he's out of the fight. He's before the fight. They may be waiting for him to disappear and die. But I think while he's with us, he seems to be the right man. And it's all a big surprise. Well, I, as somebody consumes quite a lot of American conservative, conservative American media, I think a lot of people, well, before the election, Trump circles talked about Biden being a sort of Trojan horse of the radical left. And I think, observing of his administration, there does seem to be this tendency within it to, to pay lip service to the demands of, of what you call just America, or, or what a right winger might call woke America. And I wonder whether you think that might be its undoing or his attempts to bring the country together will be undone by the fact he has to, his party is dominated by, by that faction. Or at least it's divided by that faction and other factions. Sure, it's definitely divided. I don't know that the progressive left really dominates it yet, but they, are, they have the energy and the momentum. They dominate the airwaves. Yeah, they dominate Twitter, they dominate cable news. But are they the voters? I think they're forever overestimating their power in the electorate and they're forever misjudging the electorate and thinking that if you're black or brown or young, you're going to think and vote like them. And it's been proven wrong over and over again, especially last year when Trump's vote among non-white Americans went up and his vote among white men went down. So all the identity politics fixed ideas were were shattered last year, but they have a way of never quite breaking. They keep coming back together. You know, when Biden talks about equity, and he does, it's an unnatural word for him. I saw in one speech he actually started to say equality, and then he caught himself and substituted equity, which is what just America has substituted in place of equality. And equity means equal outcomes across identity groups. So it, two things, it's, it's all about outcomes and it's all about identity groups. And I think there are some issues in which I think that's a completely fair way to approach it. For example, if there's been a long history of the US Department of Agriculture discriminating against black farmers so that they become dispossessed, the federal government needs to send money to black farmers. But if it's a policy for every domestic issue, including education, and that there's an executive order Biden signed that made it the basis for all domestic policy, I think that's risky. It's going to become divisive. It's going to have perverse outcomes because equity is not, does not send you to the right policy. It just blinds you to the effects of your policy. And I think... There's an internal battle within the administration that's basically generational between Biden and the people around him who are equal America Democrats and younger officials who, who believe in equity, who, for whom equity is the main benchmark. And it hasn't become a destructive fight. It's been very muted. But I can see on as the big bills on infrastructure and on the family plan and voting rights come forward, then the party is going to be faced with its own internal divisions. And Biden will have to play a very subtle and active role in trying to heal them. Do you think equity actually becomes something quite un-American in the sense that it's, it's not equality in the way de Tocqueville understood it? 
Yeah, equity, I mean, it's this tricky, slippery word. Mainly because it sounds so much like equality. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know that any two people could actually define it in the same way. Because to me, it's always meant fairness. And so when someone talking about we need more equity, we need more fairness. I'm not going to be against fairness. <laughs> we can't be against fairness. But it began to take on a kind of um, official meaning in health circles, in education circles, and then finally in political campaigns where it actually became a conscious choice to replace equality with equity. Kamala Harris ran an ad at the very end of the campaign last year that was about an explanation of what equity means. And I honestly didn't understand who was the target. Was she trying to reinforce her equity left vote or what? But I think equity... I, I just think you're right. It's going to lead to some Americans believing that they are being discriminated against and that merit is being ignored and, and even need is being ignored. Because what if you are white and need what you're not getting because it's being distributed on a different basis? So it, it, if it's taken to that extent, yeah, it's going to be destructive. George, I think we'd better end it there. But thank you very much for joining us. I hope we'll get you on again. And for any listeners who are interested or intrigued by what George is talking about, I recommend his book. It's a very interesting read and beautifully written. It's called Last Best Hope, an essay on the revival of America. And it's available for sale now. Mm-hmm.